Let's start by praying. Father, you are great and gracious. Um, As we gather, we celebrate Jesus who made it possible for us to have access to you and come to you. Um, We pray for those who are members of our church family who are hurting or sick. Um, There have been so many over the past few weeks and we we ask that you do what only you can do and that is to go so deep by the power of your spirit to comfort and strengthen them may you uh, bless them and watch over them while they are away and then as we gather would you just uh, bless us as we open your word and um, seek to understand and submit and follow Jesus Um, do that we we ask for your glory And for our good, uh, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so let me direct you to Acts chapter 20. And we're going to be looking at the last part of that chapter. It is such a good passage. It's a place where Paul gives a speech to the Ephesian elders. Um, But as you're making your way there, just to kind of frame in what we do, it's such a blessing that what makes all of this possible, we celebrated it with communion, we, we uh, sang it in celebration, that how can somebody like you, how can somebody like me know God? You know, have a relationship with God. We've given all of our sin and uh, His transcendence and our limitations and, you know, the wrong that we've done and that sort of thing. Well, the way that's possible, the only way that's possible is that Jesus laid down His life for us. Right? You, all of your sin, if you've believed in Jesus, all of your sin has been washed away because He bore it. And you can come to God uh, knowing that He receives you because He looks at you and all He sees is the righteousness of Jesus. You know, theologians call that the imputed righteousness of Jesus. The idea that Jesus addressed everything fundamentally wrong with you that got in the way of your relationship with God, so we celebrate that. What a huge blessing. So that if you know Jesus, the aim of your life, the aim of my life ought to be that I, I want to be the best follower of Jesus that I can be. I want to know him better every day. I want, to, I want to fight sin. I want to have victory over sin. I want to love my neighbor in his name so that they can know Jesus too. And I, I want that for you. I mean, one of the things that we ought to want is to say, I want to grow in my relationship with Christ, in my walk with Christ, and I want others to be strengthened too. You know, one of the ways I think about saying this is, like, if we're close, you, you ought to be better for Jesus because I'm in your life. And I ought to be better for Jesus because you're in my life. And when we get together as a church, one of the cool things about it is that we get to remember over and over again with all the distractions in the world and that sort of thing, just how great our Savior is, just how good our Savior is to address all that stuff and to bring us to God. And so when we gather together as God's people and we open Scripture, we have this blessing of of going, hey, this Word is God's. How do we understand it so that we can receive it and be the best disciples of Jesus we can possibly be? How do we want to make sure we receive His Word? And so that's my simple task this morning is to walk through this passage and just say, let's make sure we understand it because the Word is God's and let's receive this Word and let's be better for Jesus uh, together. So... Uh, as we do it, like I said, this is a speech that Paul gives or a talk that Paul gives 
to the Ephesian elders. That's a place he had spent about three years of ministry. The Lord had opened a door, um, great gospel work there, but he's moved on. He's got other things that he wanted to do, but primarily the next thing on the agenda is for him to get to Jerusalem. So he's, get, he's got that on his mind. And so look at verse 17 with me. It says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. Now, if you were here last week, you remember that Paul's been traveling around, and on the eastern side of the Aegean Sea, he's traveling down, and he goes from coastal town to coastal town to coastal town, but he skips over Ephesus, even though he had been there, and he knows those folks and all of that. And the reason was he didn't want to get tied up there. And so he skips that town, and it's a, Ephesus to Miletus is about 30 miles as the crow flies. But the route is longer than that. So for Paul to send words, to send word to the Ephesian elders, it's not the whole church, it's the leaders in the church. And for him to send word and for them to come back is going to take at least, you know, somewhere around three days. So he does that because he wants to meet with them. So he doesn't want to get tied up there, and the reason, but he does have a word that he wants to give them. He, there's, there's something he wants to address. Now, what is that? Well, these are going to be his last words to him. They're never going to see each other again. They've got that connection in the relationship. And you can just see, even though he's going to shoot them straight, I want you to pop down to the end of this. Look at verses 36 through 38. This is after uh, he says what he has on his heart. Look at the response. It says, And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all, and they embraced Paul and kissed him because of the being sorrowful most of all because the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again and then they accompanied him to the ship so after he does this i mean you just see the warmth and connection uh there's grieving because they know they're not going to see each other again they send him off they're they're probably concerned about him because he tells them he's going into danger okay um he's not the lord is moving him on He's not so much, Paul isn't concerned with himself as he is with them. Now, let's take what he has to say to them, and we're going to walk through that. But we, the best way to do it, I think, is it frames out in basically three parts. Um, and he's got a little bit of a different emphasis in each part as he goes through. The first part of what Paul has to say to these Ephesian elders is in verses, uh, at the end of verse 18 through 21. So if you look at the beginning of verse 18, it says, And when they came to him, he said to them, so the Ephesian elders are there. Presumably they pass like greetings back and forth and that sort of thing. But somewhere along the way, uh, he starts to tell them what's on his mind. Look at the, verse, at the end of verse 18. And, it says, and he says to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time uh, from the first day I set foot in Asia. Now, Asia was Roman province, Ephesus, where they're from, is in Asia. And he says, you know how I lived among you. Now, why is he saying that? You know my life. And so the first part of this is he's describing my life among you, right? Why is that important? Well, if there's any apostle who had, was undermined in terms of, is he a legitimate apostle? Did he have uh, severe opponents and that sort of thing? It was the Apostle Paul. Rumors would start, people would badmouth him and that sort of thing. Well, what do you do about that? Listen, sometimes people don't like you and it's not your fault. I mean, sometimes it is. But sometimes people don't like you and it's not your fault. And what you have to do is let your character speak for itself. 
right? Who are you really? You aren't what everybody else says about you. You are who you are. You are who the Lord Jesus says you are. And what Paul says, and if that's in, in fact what's going on, or if they have their own doubts because he's going be, to be gone for good, what he says is, listen, you know, you watched it with your own eyes. You saw how I lived. From the first day, the whole time I was there, I didn't change. You got to see this on display. Now, what's the whole thing that they saw in Paul's life? Look at verse 19. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. First thing, what do you know about Paul? It's like, what do you know about my life? I served the Lord. I didn't serve myself. My life belonged to Jesus, and I served Him. That's what I did. Um, and how did I do that? With all humility. In other words, there wasn't a confusion. Paul did not confuse. Uh, like, like, if you saw my life, and you see this with leaders sometimes, and unfortunately you see it in the church sometimes. If what you didn't see with Paul is this guy who thought that he was the big deal. It, he never got it backwards. The Lord Jesus was always the big deal in his life. I served the Lord. That was, he was my master. Now, he had to do that with humility because he was put in some tough spots with tears and with trials, given the plots against him from the Jews. In other words, you got to see that I was a guy who hung in there, and I served the Lord in spite of all that. I had personal disappointment. I had people who didn't like me, all because I belonged to Jesus. And that's what you saw. He goes on to say, um, in verses 20 and 21, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul says, this is what I was about. I shared the gospel with you. I told you, as an ambassador of Jesus, what he had to say. Now, as somebody who leads and as somebody who does a lot of public speaking, one of the easiest things in the world to do is to tell you the parts of that message that you would like to hear. Right? And I've, I've just experienced it. Anybody who's been in ministry and leadership for a long time has been through this. If I'm talking about something out of the word that everybody in the room goes, that's right, especially if it's one of those electric topics, then everybody's like, yeah, you know, that was great. That was so good. Now, on the other hand, if I'm talking about something that's less popular and there's less agreement and that sort of thing, but it's clear in God's word, like if there's an idol there that's starting to creep up in the church and we're shaking on that a little bit everybody's like ah, i don't know about that what paul is saying is listen i i shared it all with you like i told you what was right in the middle you want to be saved you want to know god you're going to come to god through jesus he's the only way but i also told you the the full counsel of god the parts that you would naturally be drawn to and like and some of the parts that you would just look at and not like and I just shot it straight with you. I did that everywhere I went, from how, in, in public places and in private places, house to house, right, and in public. I did that no matter who you were. I wasn't just trying to draw a following to myself. It didn't matter whether you were Gentile or Jew. And I did that uh, even in opposition, right? You got the whole message everywhere to every person. That's what you saw in my life. You saw a guy who represented Jesus, 
live that life among you despite what anybody else might say. Now, the second part of it is he transitions and he goes, given that, here's the plan for me now. Verses 22 through 24. And the plan is going to Jerusalem and suffering. Look at the first part of verse 22. It says, And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. Interestingly enough, the way he describes this is not... He does this in other places where he talks about a move that he wants to make sort of as a strategic move. I had it in my mind or something like that that I wanted to go to this place or to these people because I, I thought there'd be a good opportunity here. But here he says... I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. The word means bound. What an interesting way to foreshadow. You know how Jesus says, nobody takes my life, I lay it down of my own accord? Paul says, now he's literally going to be in chains. But he says the real chains, the the real power is that I'm going in operation by the Spirit. I am bound by the Spirit. So there's this interesting foreshadow that he's basically saying, there's a greater power than any that you're going to see. I'm following the Spirit here. I don't have a choice. I have to do this. Um, Now, listen to how he describes it. From the end of verse 22 all the way through 24, the way he describes it is kind of like, I don't know this, but I do know this. I don't care about this, but I do care about this. So what does he not know, and what does he know? End of verse 22, not knowing what will happen to me there. Like, listen, I'm going to Jerusalem. I don't know what's going to go down. I don't know exactly how this is going to go, except, verse 23, that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So it's not like I'm going on a tour of the Holy Land, right? It's not as though he's going, when he says, I don't know what's going to happen, he means that in general, but he's saying, listen, I do know that it's going to be tough. I do know that I am walking directly into hardship and suffering. I'm going to be put in prison. I'm going to suffer. This isn't going to go well. well. So what's on your mind then? What does he care about? What would you care about if you got word? Let's just say that you said exactly what Paul said. I've got to do this impossible thing because the Holy Spirit constrains me. And I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be thrown in prison. What would you be thinking about? Well, normally you'd be thinking about yourself, right? Let's see what Paul has to say. He says in um, verse 24, But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. Pause there. You ever wonder how you get there? Like, the, If you're going to be a courageous person, you have to care about yourself a little less. Right? How everything, how you look and... Uh, you have to know that your security rests in something beyond whether or not you live or die. Paul just looks at it and goes, listen, I don't really care whether I live or die. That's not what my life is about. Then what is it about? Follow along here. He says, if only, this is the end of verse 24, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Like, listen, the Lord Jesus has given me an assignment to make sure that I spread the good news to everybody. And the main thing I want to know, like, listen, my life isn't about whether I live or die. My life belongs to Jesus. So what is my life about then? I've I've been given this great assignment from Jesus, and I just want to make sure that I finish my course. 
If I care about anything, I just want to know that I honored the Lord Jesus. Why do I care whether I'm going to live or die? I'm going to die regardless. What I want to hear, the aim of my life, is that at the end of it, I would hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's what I want to hear the Lord Jesus say. Now, a little note on feelings. You don't do this if your feelings boss you around. All right? Listen, if you're the kind of person who, um, you know, you struggle with your, your temperament, your moods, your feelings, and all of that. So if, if your feelings make the decision about whether you do what you need to do, uh, what you eat, when you go to bed, uh, how you discipline yourself, what you're about, if your feelings boss you around, then the Lord Jesus isn't going to be your Lord. Right? You're not going to be obedient to him is what I mean by that. You, sometimes you're going to have to make a choice between what your feelings say and what the Lord Jesus says and decide, I'm going to submit myself to the Lord Jesus. I, the Lord Jesus owned me, owns me. He bought me. My feelings didn't and don't. Okay? So, all right, he's saying that's the plan for me now. So listen, you know my life. Transition. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going into danger. And so this is what the Lord Jesus has for me now. And then the third part is the situation for you the, the church in Ephesus now. And this is the longest part of it, verses 25 through 35. And look at verse 25, how he starts this. And you'll notice, do you see how he started verse 22, and now behold? He's saying, basically, okay, here's one topic, now behold, this is what's going on with me. You get to verse 25, and there's another, now behold. And so he transitions to say, this is the situation for you. Again, verse 25. I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. This is the last time we're going to chat. Now, if you love somebody and you know it's the last time you're going to see them and you're having that conversation, that's a different kind of conversation. You live long enough, you have some of those conversations. You live long enough, you see people go through things. There are times you look somebody in the eye and you know, like, this is it, right? With, these are, are somebody you love who's passing away, somebody who's moving to a different part of the world. And you know, okay, this is it. This is the last conversation we're going to have. So that's this kind of conversation. Verses 26 and 27, again, maybe some of the rumors are catching up there. Look at this. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. What an interesting thing to say. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. There's a place in Ezekiel 33 where God tells the person who's supposed to speak for him that, hey, listen, you're like a watchman on a tower. You're either going to warn them or you're not going to warn them. And if you don't warn them, their blood is on your hands when there's danger. Now, what is it that you're supposed to say? You see that in the following verse? How is it that he's got a clean, a clean conscience? How is it that he has clean hands? I told you the whole truth. I, when it came to God's word, I didn't hold back anything. I let you know everything that I was supposed to, that you needed to know. I didn't hold any of it. Even if you didn't like it, the word is God's, and so you needed to know it. Sometimes... If you're, receiving, if you're on the receiving end of God's word, the thing you need most is the thing that you would like the least, right? The thing that presses that, that area that you go like, I don't want to deal with that. A lot of times that's the area that the Lord Jesus 
wants to deal with the most. So then transition to what he says in verse 28. So he says, listen, I'm not going to see you again. I've got clean hands with you, but here's one last go at it. And he says, watch yourselves, pay attention to yourselves, and watch over the flock. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Now, it's easy to get to the second part, but stop after the first. He's talking to elders. And one of the things that you should uh, make note of is that whenever he, he starts with them, he says, watch yourself. One of the easiest things that you could do as a, as a leader in the church is start to look at God's Word just for what you can produce. I, I'm, I'm going to look at God's Word just for what I say to other people, as though you're skipping something there. Everybody in the room, even the preacher guy, even the guy behind the pulpit, needs the grace of, of God. Right? I, I don't live the Christian life any differently than anybody else. I have to believe in Jesus by faith. I have to be informed by His Word. I have to battle sin. I have to humble myself and submit myself before the Lord Jesus. All the commands apply to me. The holes in my game are there. I need to address them just like everybody else. And he tells the leaders in the church, first thing you need to do, you need to watch yourself. Pay careful attention to yourself. You can't give people what you don't have. You want people to have a deep, vibrant relationship with Jesus? Well, you better start by cultivating that yourself. Right? You walk with them yourself and then invite others along. Right? Uh, just because you're a leader doesn't mean you're invincible. You see this a lot, that sometimes people uh, assume a particular role like this, and they assume, well, like, like I, I'll give you one that was sort of when I was a younger guy. I, I heard somebody else say this, but this so applies. You're a young guy, and you become a pastor, and you think kind of in your, in your arrogance. You don't know it's arrogant at the time. You think, well, the Lord called me to be a pastor because I'm sanctified. And you're like, no, 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 no. The Lord called you to be a pastor, and that's the way he's going to sanctify you, right? Uh, right? So you've got, you've got a lot of growing to do, Stacy. a lot of growing to do. And one way the Lord Jesus has been faithful to me is he's made me a pastor, and he's put me in situation after situation where I had to grow. One of the things that I like about being a pastor and having to stay in the same place, I can't do the things I'm good at for two years and then go somewhere else. I, you know, I get to the end of the things that I'm good at. Well, let's call it two years, right? Let's be generous to me. And so you get to the end of it, it's two years, and then you figure out, like, what are we going to do now? i got to keep learning and growing, right? What, which is what every Christian, every follower of Jesus needs uh, to keep doing. But once he says, watch yourselves, and then he says, and watch all the flock, right? Um, all the flock, interesting. Every pastor has this. There are some people in the flock who are easier to shepherd than others, right? There are just some people. It's like, you know, I, I'm, I assume that if you had, like, if you have three kids or if you have, like, I have two kids, who do you love better? You know, your daughter or your son? I love them the same. And that's true. But if I had like 200 kids, I'm sure there's some that I would love a little bit more than others, right? You know, I mean, it's just sort of the, the way it would go. And what he says to the pastors is love all the flock. Everybody, you know, you got some who are like human cacti, 
love them, right? You have some who are big fans, you know, love them. Um, everybody in between, that changes. There's a, there's a technical note. Now, notice this. It, in the Bible, in the New Testament, elder, overseer, pastor, all refer to the same uh, person in the church. So like in verse 17, he called the elders to him. So he's talking to the elders. And then in verse 28, he says, pay attention to yourselves and to all the flock, your shepherds, your pastors, pastor, shepherd, same thing, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. All of that's the same uh, person in a New Testament church. And he says, note this, if you are a pastor, uh, elder, overseer, he says, the Holy Spirit put you there. People don't make you an elder. The Holy Spirit does that. The church's job is just to discern and affirm that, that role in that ministry that the Holy Spirit has given you. You're there to care for the flock, not to build a following. Um, the church is God's. It's not yours. It's been bought with Jesus' own blood. Now, a guy in my spot who gets that confused is in real trouble, and he's leading people to trouble. Because it's, it's really funny, like, whenever the disciples are following Jesus around, and they ask the question, like, you know, like, hey, Jesus, who's the greatest? And when you've got Jesus and you've got everybody else, it really kind of doesn't matter who comes in second. Even if the, the guy in second is a pastor guy, and I just know too many pastors to think that pastors would automatically come in second, right? Now notice this. So he says, watch yourself and watch all the flock. You're there. The Holy Spirit puts you in that role. You're to care for them. Uh, they belong. This is a stewardship. This is God's church. These people belong to him. They've been bought with Jesus' own blood. And then he's going to say, this is why that's such a big deal. After I'm gone, verse 29... I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. They're going to be false teachers. There's going to be a threat from the outside. They, they know how to hunt. They hunt stealthily, and they hunt to kill. Now listen, somebody who disagrees with you is not a false teacher. Like somebody who disagrees with you on a, on a point in church or whatever like that is not necessarily a false teacher. You're never going to go to a church where you absolutely, I mean, if you've been thinking for a while and you dig into Scripture, where you absolutely agree on every secondary and tertiary issue that's there. Okay? False teacher is a technical term. And what it means is like, listen, there's a clear gospel. God has good news for you, and that is, in spite of your sin, the Lord Jesus has made a way for you to be saved. He died for your sin, and he overcame death so that you could have life in him, so you could be forgiven. If you put your faith, if you repent and believe in him, but it's Jesus and only Jesus, not your goodness, not your good works that'll save you. And you know what a false teacher is? It's somebody who takes that good news and adjusts it and messes it up. It's somebody who ultimately adjusts the teaching of the gospel so that it undermines people's, a, a person's ability to be saved. Right? So he's like, listen, fierce wolves are going to come in and they're going to try to undermine this teaching and they're not going to have a heart for the people of God. The second thing, look at verse uh, uh, 30, more sobering. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. It's like, listen, there's an external threat. False teachers are going to have their eye on the church. 
But there's also another problem. There's going to be some of you in this group are going to come and you're going to go, like, good elders are going to go bad. Good leaders are going to go bad. Uh, it's easy to make ministry an idol so you can elevate yourself. It's easy to change whenever you taste a little power. Do you notice the draw? What are they draw? Are they drawing people to follow Jesus or are they drawing people to follow them? You know, they, these people want to be followed. So what does he say? Verse 31, alertness is going to be required. If this is the case, if this is the danger that you're going to be uh, put in, therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Paul's like, this was a personal ministry to me. You remember how I did it? The reason I did it is because this is the case. You're going to have to be sober about what's going on. You're going to have to be awake to the world that you live in and to this spiritual reality. The second thing that he commends is God and His Word, verse 32. And now I commend to you God and the Word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. God's Word builds. It, you, know, you get your inheritance through God. What do you need to do? You need to be alert to the spiritual reality, and you need to, based on God's Word, turn to God. And then finally, verses 33 through 35, to wrap it up, it says, take care of the weak. Now, who, who are the weak in the church? Guess what? We take turns. And sometimes it's your turn, and sometimes it's my turn. You know, at the beginning of the year, um, my family went through a lot. I went through a lot. Uh, Father-in-law passed away. Uh, I had a stroke out of nowhere, and you cared for me. It was my turn. Um, there are going to be times that you're going to be the strong one in the room, and what are you supposed to do? Use your strength to help the weak. But we take turns on that. Uh, look what he says. Again, he appeals to his example. And some of this may be his reputation, but some of this is what they're going to be facing. Uh, look at verse 33. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. By the way, just as a preacher guy, if all I care about is what I make, uh, watch out. Uh, that's a problem. He says, but like, listen, you could tell based on what I did that I wasn't about trying to get paid. That wasn't what my ministry was about. Verse 34, <clears throat> you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the, Lord, the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Like, you saw me help those who have been vulnerable. So you saw my example. We know the teaching of Jesus. Let's take care of the weak. All right. Now, briefly, let me give you three insights and five things to support and pray for, okay? What do we draw out of this good passage? We could, we could be here a ton. Um, it's so well-rounded, but let me give you three insights Number one, the church can always find itself in a hostile, adverse setting. You go from, like, listen, hey, who's your Ephesus? Hey, who's leading your church? Well, the Apostle Paul, right? You're probably in pretty good hands there. And then next thing you know, Paul's gone, and hey, who's leading your church? Well, I don't know, some guy named Stacy or whatever, right? Um, like, you know, Apostle Paul or like some dude. And they go from that. But not even just that, 
while they, you know, while they had opposition there, they had such a good faithful shepherd in Paul that it, you know, they knew that there was a buffer. And what he's telling them is those threats now somebody else is going to have to absorb. Right? Whether it's the threats from the outside or the threats from the inside. We are vulnerable, always, no exceptions. That means you, that means me. Nobody gets to stay strong forever. So we better hope bigger than our own intrinsic abilities. Right? The church, uh, the, which is these little outposts of the kingdom, to be light in a dark world is here in a dark, hostile situation. It's always growth against the grain. Second thing, the church always needs to be on the lookout for leaders. It's definitely true of us. I mean, we've got two active elders right now. You get good leaders, you get good care. Um, what do you look for? Well, just real briefly, two things, character and content. Somebody who's really gifted but doesn't have the character uh, is probably going to draw a following to himself. Somebody who's got <laughs> like, like a real heart for you but won't shoot it straight, is too afraid to hurt your feelings, is probably whenever it gets down to it's going to compromise his ministry. So character, you look at how they live. Do they, do they live it out? Do they love you? And will they protect you? Uh, content, what do they say? What do they, what do they teach? Do they tell you the truth, all of it to everyone? Do they tell you the things even that you don't want to hear? Like, listen, one of the roles of a shepherd in a church is that when somebody twists off on the inside, you tell them the truth. And when a wolf comes in, you shoot them. You know what I mean? Like, like you, give them a, you give them a shot, and then you give them the shot, right? And so there are times, 20 years of ministry or so, we've had people come in who, who really wanted to hijack the ministry of the church with a, a tailored teaching. What do you do? You, you talk to them about the Word of God. My role in that, Brad's role in that, if you're a teacher, your role in that is whenever somebody threatens the gospel ministry here is to call that out for what it is and to call them to repent um, or they can't participate. We are not going to platform a teaching that's going to undermine the teaching of the gospel. So you look for character and content. And number three, the Christian life doesn't base everything on this life. Think about the, the, the way Paul describes himself. I don't account my life of any value. Now, I think the way you get there is that you have to know that your hope in the future is ultimate. You have to realize you're going to die anyway. And to use the words of Jim Elliott, um, you want to give up what you can't keep to get what you can't lose. And so do you, do you fear man... Or do you desire, like Paul, to complete your assignment? If you're going to base whether or not God is faithful and Jesus is faithful on how your life here goes, you're going to be disappointed. If you're go- like, right, the hope is not your best life now. It's your best eternity forever. But now, there's going to be some ups and downs. I mean, it's just going to be the way it it goes. You're going to have hardship in front of you regardless of what anybody else tells you. Okay. So what do we... I want to encourage you. I'm going to link next week's sermon to this. Let me give you five things to support and pray for, and then we'll wrap up. Number one, pray for more leaders. Do you notice in the Ephesian church, they had multiple leaders, right? The elders, plural, they gathered around. Uh, you, you need to pay attention to all the flocks. So, more leaders. Number two, 
Pray for faithful leaders. Uh, men who like Paul don't confuse which one of them is Jesus, right? You, you know that Jesus is always Jesus and that your job is always to be a servant of his. Faithful leaders, pe- people, men who put their hand to the plow and they want to honor Jesus regardless. Number three, alertness, right? He, he says this, verse 31, therefore be alert. Like, listen, pay attention, keep your eyes open, stay awake through this. Don't get lulled to sleep. Uh, number four, courage. The two times here that Paul says, I didn't shrink back. In other words, the easiest thing in the world to have done would have been to back off and say, ooh, I'm upsetting people. And instead, where it mattered, he had courage. Um, and that's got to be rooted in the Lord Jesus and not us. So courage. And number five, being there for each other. One of the best marks of a church is whenever you're hurting, that church can't stop that. But they can, if you keep the doors open, they can make sure you don't hurt alone. You know, Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Jesus said, love one another as I've loved you. That's law of Christ. And Paul in Galatians 6.2 says, bear one another's burdens. There are times you're going to have a burden I can't take away. I wish I could. But what I can do is while you're carrying it, I can come alongside and I can put my shoulder next to yours and help you carry it for a while. And you can do the same for me. Mark of a, a really good church is people who belong to the church family go, hey, you know something's going on in your life? I'm going to do whatever I can because I love you. You belong to Jesus and we're in this together. All right, just what a great word before he goes. May we live it out. Let's take a moment to pray. Lord, thank you for the example of Paul. The, it's the only time in the book of Acts where he addresses you know, an exclusively Christian audience. What, how rich is it for us? So we, we ask for more leaders, the grace to have faithful leaders, help us to be alert, to have courage and not shrink back, um, to declare your whole word, uh, to live it, not, not in defensiveness, but with joy because Jesus is worth it. And uh, give us the grace to have a heart for each other, to love each other as Jesus has loved us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.